What's going on, everybody? You've got the cardboard coach here with your boy, Coach Co. And team, we've got a very special guest on the podcast here today. We have Max DeMarco, aka Cards Max. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing great. Um, it's an honor to be on the Cardboard Coach podcast, <laughs> and I'm ready to get into it today. I'm excited to have you. Uh, you know, most of my demographic is, I would say, like hockey, dash of soccer. They love baseball, uh, basketball and football and kind of the, the markets that have exploded the most over the last, I would say, and like without with the exception of hockey, um, over the last, I'd say, three years. And so I thought it'd be really fun to not only get to know you more, but to talk baseball for once. And you deal... I mean, you mentioned to me previously before the the podcast that like baseball is your evergreen. Do you want to kind of explain what that means for the, the everyday person? Yeah. From, well, from a collecting standpoint, I'm almost entirely baseball with a hint of New York Knicks basketball as I'm from Long Island, New York, but from a buying and selling and dealing perspective, I'm definitely most knowledgeable in baseball and the brands and the parallels and the nuances and I use the term evergreen just because I buy it and sell it regardless of if it's in season, off season, all-star break, wherever. While American football and basketball, I'm definitely way more privy and hesitant to enter from a buying and selling standpoint in season because just because of the natural market swings. But I think part of that is just to brand awareness, enjoyment, and enjoyment of the sport and players. I think that's an important distinction. And I think that's something that doesn't really get talked about enough is that like, if you know your sport, I think you can buy at any time. Do you know what I mean? Like, obviously there's times that are, there, there are more favorable opportunities to buy. Like, but as the market becomes wiser, like, I don't know about you. And and again, I don't really know too much about like baseball off season. Uh, but I find that the off season gets shorter and shorter in terms of like, if you were to look at a chart for specific players and their cards, they don't you don't really have those like massive dips anymore because everyone's kind of wise wised up to the having buying in the off season trend. Like would you would you would you agree with that? Yeah, for the most part, I would agree with that. I know it's been a little bit almost a joke at this point in that the baseball offseason gets earlier or ends earlier and earlier. Um a lot of people are targeting ooh, my Google calendar for this one off. Um <laughs> People target Bowman prospecting and offseason targets and that needle of when they enter sometimes, oh, the bottom is in February and then it's been closer to closer to January for the bottoming for baseball. But these are just rough estimates. And they're always in the basis. Um, the biggest example I can think of that is American football when Trevor Lawrence and the Jacksonville Jaguars were pay- playing uh, Justin Herbert and the Chargers and Trevor Lawrence lost that game. But um also interesting they were playing the playoff game in the dallas card show during the trade night which i think might have led to some biases to how strong trevor lawrence's performance was but oh and that was my alarm to enter the zoom <laughs> i love it we'll some great producing well yeah but yeah um lots of people witnessed trevor lawrence lots of members in the hobby witnessed trevor lawrence's performance and really the dip for Trevor Lawrence was down for maybe a week or two and then quickly soared right up as people wanted to target him immediately for the offseason. So it's all a game of hype. It's all on a case-on-case basis. But you can't time the market perfectly, really, in any context. And that's why I think it's important that that people start to kind of make adjustments in terms of their thinking. I think so much of uh, you know, being successful in in the last four years in the card market. And and I, I, I'm i determining success. I mean, first of all, if, collect whatever the hell you like. But I'm talking about from like an ROI perspective on things that you, you purchase and then later sell is knowing when to make those adjustments and, and realizing pretty early, like either when to get out of something or that to your point, you're really never going to buy in at the bottom like very seldom are you gonna get like the bottom comp on something if you if you zoom out over the course of like 12 months yeah i think that's a good way of putting it um there's definitely different and part of what makes you know 
the buying and selling of cards in the hobby is so fun. So there's definitely many different avenues to make your money, whether that's the more mechanical ways of grading or buying at a margin. But I guess hinting to what I was saying about baseball as an evergreen, I saw a Shohei Otani image variation at a show and I think it was priced at 70 and I immediately saw it. I'm like, I need this card. I'm going to sell it. And right now it's pending at like $300 or so. Part of that jump is just immediately recognizing what the rare card of the image variation is. Part of that, I feel like there's less image variations and neat and, you know, weird, interesting stuff like that in hockey and basketball and football. Maybe baseball is more specific to that. But if there were a certain rare, flawless autograph or hockey variation, I'd be completely blind to it and I wouldn't think twice. Well, a more knowledgeable collector in that sport would be able to target that. That's very interesting, actually. And you're right. I mean, for the most part, uh, up until I think this most recent, uh, what is it, the Series 1, where they started to actually put designations on the back where it says like SSP. Yeah, I 2023 led to some innovation. I don't know why I, I, don't know why I said 2021. Yeah, 2021. No, I, yeah. Well, they've always had it to where not only was the imagination on the, on the front, but on the... I don't want to say barcode because that's incorrect, but on the code designating the specific card type on the bottom of the back of the card where like the trademarks for tops is and the copyright information, there's like a alphanumeric code on the bottom. And I think the last three digits you can use to distinct if it's a certain variation, but that's like the very technical way of just not recognizing it. By you, also need, you also need like a magnifying glass in order to yeah. see <laughs> you also need some killer 2010 vision on that. But now I believe there's no more short prints and super short prints. There's just SSP or the golden mirror variations. And I want to say Fanatics had some competition to where the first person to assemble all 700 of them won like a trillion dollars or something like that. Yeah, I think it was like a $100,000 prize or something. And I don't know if it was Fanatics. I think it might have been like David Adams or, or yeah, something. Yeah, or like yeah. a proxy or a surrogate. Yeah, but yeah like a trillion. Yeah. Yeah, it's close. <laughs> I mean, might as well be. You know, they're handing yeah. you a large, large sum of money with one of those big phony, phony checks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I to your point, it they're not easy to spot. Like, I know that. I mean, I've I've covered tons of stories where someone has bought like a, I think one of the the cards I'm thinking was specifically there was like an Ichiro variation or something, um, or maybe it was a Julio Rodriguez rookie variation, and and someone had sold it for like. $30 and I, they, it happened to be considerably more than that. And, and so uh, I think you're right. I think when you're knowledgeable about the sport, you know, I'll, when I make videos like that, there's a lot of people in the comments that, section saying that like, Oh, congrats. Like you cheated the person you bought it from or so, you know, when you're on the lookout for things like this, you know, what are some steps that you take in order to, you know, is it just like a fair game? Like you didn't know what you had? Is it like I found this in a dollar box? Like what happens in instances like that? And and has that ever happened to you, for instance? Not to that extent. Um, I think there's a, just a natural degree of, okay, is you know, just bare bones. Was this consensual between the buyer and seller? Yeah. Was the seller listed at a certain price? Was the seller coerced into taking a lower price outside of normal negotiations. And really, as long as those things are, yes, it is kind of fair game. Um, I just view it as partly, again, not to sound pompous, but having a clientele of buyers, whether that's a social media following or just being really good at eBay, viewing eBay and having eBay take that consignment fee or using a Discord or social media to streamline you know, your sales without having much of an algorithm being dependent on that. Like even in the case of my Ichiro, or excuse me, my Shohei Otani image variation, the owner knew the image variation he had okay. and the card just hadn't sold since I think August or something like that. So I didn't really see that as like taking advantage of or anything. Yeah. It's in, yeah. That was in, in reference to me, but yeah. the seller fully knew what he was doing or even if he, even if he didn't know it was a variation, he was consenting to the sale in good faith. Um, I don't want to go on a tangent, but it kind of, no, no, that's me. okay. I mean, I'm asking these questions and yeah. not to like accuse you of anything, but I'm just saying like, this is like, these are, I personally think that, 
you know, it's kind of on the onus of the individual selling. Like if you're selling something, you kind of obviously you don't want to fleece someone. And like to your point, both yeah. people need to leave this transaction feeling like they, they got what they wanted for 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 this this item. But at the end of the day, I mean, it's also you can't just sell stuff and not know what you're selling either. Right. So like me personally, if I sell anything, I'm like digging in. I mean, one of the, the beauties of of collecting and one of the things that like when I was ripping early on was like. I was researching the hell out of literally every single card I pulled, whether that was like the set I was researching, the player I was researching, the the variation, the the parallel, whatever whatever it was, um, because I wanted to make sure that like I was knowledgeable about what I was eventually going to sell. Right, so I think that that a lot of you know we passed the buck to a certain extent where we're like, oh well, you took advantage of that person or you you know, that person got cheated or whatever the case may be. And, and, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that like the hobby is just fucking lazy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like I think part of the over-researching and over diving off into, you know, the swimming pool of the deep end, the deep end of the swimming pool, either, or yeah. is being able to immerse yourself in all these little specific intricacies of the card. And I think that's what makes it fun for everyone. Yeah. I know when I'm selling a card, like I'm, happy if someone else makes money off me yeah i don't you know if it's you know if it you know maybe they double or triple my intro my investment in the end maybe i question myself a little bit but point being i am always buying and selling at a number that i'm comfortable with usually already accounting for me taking money but i'm pretty loud in saying that it's okay to take losses i'm always okay taking like a 10% loss or something like that if it's something to grade and it just didn't work out yeah. or it's not worthy enough to submit but, you know, I just try to, and I think what some of the better people who are better at buying and selling do, they're just very good at keeping it moving and keeping it flowing. Um, the tangent I wanted to get on is that there is a T202 card. I know we're getting vintage cool. but it's like a long triple folder card. And Shoeless Joe Jackson is known for not having many cards or playing, playing career cards at all. So really anything coveted by him is in strong demand. And... Um, there's a middle, so there's two portraits of different players on each end. And then in the middle panel, there's a play that, you know, a photograph of a player sliding into a base or making a catch or something like that. And it was photo matched on an internet form on net 54 that the person sliding into a base in the middle panel could possibly be Sheila Joe Jackson. So that went, made the card, I think this was discovered in like 2010 going from like you know, maybe 200 bucks to like a thousand dollars or so, or something like that. And I've researched this card and which is just kind of cool to own a Shoeless Joe Jackson card that some auction houses like Heritage will make it very apparent in the description, what makes this card special while others at, you know, in my case, PWCC, yeah. I was buying this card and they made no mention that Shoeless Joe Jackson was thought to be in this card at all which again that that's just how each auction house works for sure so in my case i was able to buy the card at i think a thousand and i held it for a few weeks and my buy it now got hit at two thousand but really again i didn't flee nor even any prospective buyer didn't fleece pwcc yeah it got bit up in the first place by another person who presumably was knowledgeable that it was a joe jackson card but point being not everything is obvious and what we choose to disclose as a buyer or a seller or whatever, I think is the business of the person selling it. And I mean that as ethically as possible. I think it was a great take, man. I think that was a very well-versed take. Talk to me a little bit about you in the the hobby. Like, where does this start? I mean, you just finished telling a, you know, a pretty comprehensive story about 2010. So uh, obviously we date, we date, we predate 2010. So where does this yeah. start and how? So, I bought, so I guess when I, like my whole collecting origin, um, I bought some baseball, or I rather, I was bought baseball packs at like six or seven years old, just as like a fun thing that, you know, you know, young boys do and they buy yeah. cards, you know, or they get attracted to cards. Pokemon was popular in my elementary school when I was growing up. And that was just more so like, oh, you can get the rare card, you know, or whatever. The old cards are worth a lot not really with a big knowledge base. And I really overall wasn't interested in sports that much back then. Then at around, you know, then that naturally died off. At around middle school, when I was 
14 or 15 turning, you know, right into high school age, um, I really became immersed in fantasy football, then basketball, then baseball. And I wanted to find a way to get like in touch with the game, but not just by silly t-shirts and memorabilia is super expensive. Yeah. So, you know, I begrudgingly as, you know, a 14 year old adolescent to ask my dad at Rite Aid, you know, I, you know, with the ages six plus on the fat pack, <laughs> Hey, can I buy this pack of 2014 top series? When can I buy this pack of baseball cards? And he's like, sure. It's $5. And I loved it. <laughs> I'm like, Oh wow. This is a Bryce Harper card. This is a, you know, DD Gregorius card or whoever, you know, not even big name players. It allowed me to get closer in touch with the game. And then I found out about serial numbered cards. Wow. There's only 2014 copies of this gold Eric Hosmer card, who is a borderline also. I'm like, wow, this is, this is really rare. This is cool. So at that age, I not only bought a lot or rather had bought a lot of baseball cards. I wasn't working or anything like that. I didn't have a debit card. So I wasn't buying anything off eBay. Okay. I never wanted to ask my parents as a 14 year old to buy me a baseball card on yeah. eBay yeah, or yeah. anything like that. But I just kept researching all of it. It's like I'm on blowout forms. I'm scrolling everything. I'm like, wow, like this is like adults can do this with their money. This is so cool. And then I kind of progressively grew out of it because I guess I started kind of plateauing. And it's not like I was buying or selling. I would just be buying um, packs at convenience stores. And then it kind of began to fade. But I learned a lot about the grading companies. I learned a lot about the prospecting. I knew Chris Bryant was the next big thing. I went to a hobby store once, I bought a pack of Bowman, and I'm like, wow, maybe one day I can buy a full hobby box. So that waned, and then when I was 19 or so, I want to say 19 to 20, I was in college, I'm on at, with my friends at Beach House, I'm thinking like, man, I could use some fun things to, you know, spice up my basement, spice up the man cave. And I'm like, oh, well, I have some knowledge on cards and memorabilia. I'm like, okay, I'm going to buy one card, and I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole, Bought a Luis Severino, who's a pitcher for the New York Yankees and now New York Mets, um, autographed tier one card for like 15 bucks. And I'm like, oh, I'm just going to buy some more Yankees autographs. And then now that I had access to young adult money yeah. and a card, I was able to buy and sell more in mass. And my shift from full time collector to now buyer and seller occurred when in during 2020, I was already knowledgeable of PSA and Beckett from researching this stuff as at like age 14. Yeah. The margins, it's like, oh, I can buy and grade this card. I can grade this card for $8 and sell PSA 10 for 100. This is too good of an offer to refuse, even if I have to wait for the turnaround time. And that initial few grading orders was what made me think about buying and selling more from a non-collector perspective. Did you get stuck in that those crazy wait times? Uh, early 2020 or did you manage to get them back before crazy wait times i want to say were like six to nine months give yeah. or take yeah. so tolerable but really anyone who whined or complained during that time I, again i'm not just going to characterize a large demographic of people no, that's okay at least from a buying and selling standpoint the bottom didn't really entirely fall out and people make it seem way more sharp than it really was because if you even if you got those grading orders six to nine months i mean i wasn't in debt i wasn't going outside of my means yeah i was still you weren't you weren't like dependent on those orders exactly i mean i just view it as oh wow in six months i can double my money that's better than eight percent in the SP. yeah yeah i mean you're 100 right what kind of stuff were you purchasing at that time um at that time i was purchasing a lot or excuse me products or singles like singles singles. i mean were, were you were you purchasing products i'm not sure um, I want to say back then you could still buy and rip some products. And again, this was when wax was a much bigger commodity. Mm-hmm. I, I remember back in the day, I was um, at 5 a.m. I would just go to Target. At, you know, people would chastise those people as, you know, oh, they're just grimy or trying to make a buck or whatever. I would get my beach care chair. I'd get my biochemistry textbook and I'd do my homework outside for my remote college courses as I'd get, you know, I'd get two to three hundred bucks for an hour's worth of not work. You know, yeah. t- you always make sure you're use, using and proactive with your time. And I just saw that, well, if you're wasting that three hours and that's not worth, but if you just do whatever you're doing, then that's worthwhile. But um, I was ripping some tops, you know, 2020 tops flagship. I know you could get Jordan Alvarez, Boba Shepard, the $5 a pop. 
and then tens would be eighty, a hundred twenty dollars, stuff like that. At that time, you could still rip, and just from getting the five dollar cards, you can grade them and do well. Yeah. Now that's a more niche thing that is not is way more difficult to do, but some people still execute it. For sure. Uh, I was usually attracted to the online exclusives like Tops Finest Flashbacks, um, the Ben Baller Chrome iterations, because I like that they were inherently way more lower print run. Yeah, that's awesome. So we transition into show season and presumably, I mean, because 2020 was kind of when you went full, like full tilt. How do you transition? Like do you, how frequently are you dealer at show now shows now? Is it, is it some like a, how much of a percentage is that in terms of like your total sales for the year? Would you say come from shows? My sales from the shows isn't that strong. I use shows, if anything, as a buying opportunity. Okay. Um, just to be able to buy at dealers at a mar or either at a margin or at, you know, find the undervalued things that I think are undervalued or yeah. find it's the grade or whatever. I just view that more as a buying opportunity than a selling opportunity. Um, I know some of the bigger shows like the Dallas card show, which is bi-monthly once every two months, the Burbank card show, which is once every six months, you know, I view, sometimes I view those as I'm able to sell my more higher end cards that I don't have the buying base or clientele to move yeah. just, and just because of the amount of people and the, the, the diversity of buyers in the room, I view those as a selling opportunity more than my usual show, but more often than not, I'm going to shows to buy. And yeah, I've been traveling the shows a bit recently. I've done, I love traveling to shows. It's fun. <laughs> I, I agree. It's one of my favorite parts about the hobby is like, it's uh and also like there, there's arbitrage right like there's certain things that sell way better in other markets than they do in in the market that you're buying them from right so i mean i oftentimes i'll go to sh uh, shows in the united states and i'll just grab like a ton of stuff for like toronto and i'm like the like kyle lowry stuff super cheap uh like vince carter stuff uh, you know like the rosen stuff stuff that you know probably is in dollar boxes in in other shows but in toronto i mean that stuff is super liquid and you know, I, I can move those things instantly. I think that, yeah, that's very like, I think individual, individualistic. I'm definitely not discriminating what you're saying. I just yeah. haven't experienced it myself. Like I know sometimes I have Braves fans that want, oh, I, you know, have a hobby shop here. I want your Braves or, oh, give me all your Mets and Yankees. I personally haven't reaped the fruit of having <laughs> specific team buyers or I guess maybe in hockey sport buyers, yeah. but I know there's definitely a lot of people that do capitalize on that. And I'm yeah. happy. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. Like even in the hockey, the hockey sense. I'm like, I go down to the United States and like people give away their hockey. <laughs> so yeah. I'm like, this is perfect. <laughs> like it's I'm set up to buy buy in the United States. Yeah. So yeah, I don't I mean, think I've owned any hockey cards that weren't like Connor McDavid Young guns. I've yeah, that's what I mean. And so like if if anyone has anything that isn't, I'm like, oh, this is beautiful. Like, and they happen to rip or whatever the case may be, right? They're like, I just kind of want to get rid of this. I'm like, I yeah. will take that off your hands. Don't you worry. I know someone. <laughs> Talk to me about prospecting. So uh, do you have, like, are you in tune with, like, the, the, the minor league systems? Like, how how deep does does your knowledge go when it comes to baseball? Is that a crucial part of, like, your your buying and selling experience? Um, I would say my knowledge is deep, relatively deep. It's, I'd say hovers at around the overall top 100 prospects. Yeah. I don't operate in it too much because a lot of it it hinges on both speculation um actually being good enough to find talent and i my thing with that is that you have to find the talent before they break out like you have to find it before they break out because if they break out too soon and they already have tops cards then sure they can go up but i feel like you're missing that ground base just due to production for sure and a lot of it is on long-term or relatively long-term holding which has no, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but I like to think of my money as very operative yeah. and that holding something for two, for a year, trying to two X is a lot more difficult to achieve and also takes up a lot more time than yeah. just buying and selling. I make it the closest thing analogous to the NFL quarterback season market in that I think probably in around February, we're going to be hearing a lot more of those names. Um, I have... I'd like to target the rare stuff of the best players that I can afford. I think that's a general sentiment that's good with 
investing or buying and holding or whatever because you want to have cards that other people want. Yeah. So I have a few true gold Bowman Chrome autographs of like Marcelo Mayer and Drew Jones and Christian Vaccaro right now. That my intention is A, to sell as soon as possible, but also B, if I'm holding them until, oh, and Jackson Holiday. And if I'm holding it till like February or March or so, that's when I'd be ready to set it to go to live auction. But if I don't get the price I need right now, I feel comfort because the general offseason swings is that it rises. Yeah. Do you find with those bigger cards, they do better at auction if you time them correctly? Oh, no, it's a skill issue. I'm just not good enough. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't um like I think my Jackson holiday card is one that's could be in the seventy five hundred to eleven thousand dollar range. And I just don't buy and sell those cards. I don't have the you know, again I use this word, but clientele to be able to uh, I don't even know the prospective buyers in my network. I know a few, but or I own the Shohei Otani PSA ten red ink heritage autograph. I saw that by far the biggest card I own. And that's probably somewhere, you know, in the 25 to $30,000 range. And I don't know buyers for that. I've never sold, I think a card over 6,500. Yeah. You know, that's just a different echelon and auction would be a resort to where I'm getting the maximum volume at value at what I think is the best time to move it. If I can't move it privately on my own. I think that's a very, I think it's, important to acknowledge that as well right like i think there's a lot of people who see comps for things and they they just they're like yeah this is what this is worth and then when it comes time to sell they they realize that there's just crickets and, and the, bottom, the bottom can fall out quick uh, my basketball prospecting has involved cole anthony and benedict matherin and i have to take it on the chin that my potential value is probably going to be a lot higher than what my actual realized value will be because I waited too long to move and that he's taking a step back this year for the Indiana Pacers rather than taking a step forward. It's a good Canadian boy. He does well in my market, man. I didn't know he was Canadian. That's yeah, 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 yeah. Does Andrew Wiggins so well? Uh, he did it. I mean, his stuff popped during the finals run. Yeah, I remember but, that. But Not from like a Canadian-centric. Not area. really. I mean, everyone is like Shea obsessed here. Okay, that makes sense. They're obsessed. And it's, I mean, re reasonably so, right? And but like people were have been on Shea for three years here, and so like it's interesting to watch, kind of the rest of the the basketball market to be like equally excited. I mean, I don't know equally excited, but also excited about Shea because like I've known people who PC'd Shea from like the minute he stepped foot in the league. Yeah, and that's just something that I, if anything, envy about F one and soccer fans is that it's so. Based on, I mean, in, in the best way possible, based on natural national pride, wanting to represent your country, wanting your country to do well. Yeah, and it's good to hear that the Canadian basketball players do do well in their own markets. But America, the United States, is entirely absent from most of those scenes, and if they are present, it's really at such like a tertiary or lower level to where it's just for the niche, you know, or F one at least in the United States. You're like, you got to be like really, really into it. And you're just like the F1 guy. There's no like, yeah. <laughs> you know, not every girl in the United States is in love with Charles Leclerc here. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's interesting as well. I mean, for the most part, you guys are, you have a massive talent pool when it comes to like every single sport, right? So it'd be, and, and you're always very competitive in those sports, if not yeah. winning them. And so I guess it's, I mean, obviously there's like nationalism attached to that, but the, the in a good the, way. Yeah, yeah, of course. I, I, I'm not. I'm not saying there's a negative sense, uh, but there's like a swinging, a revolving door of like people coming in and out. So I guess there's just not. Whereas like th this team, Canada, this basketball team is probably not going to change very much in the next like five years, realistically. Like this is the best team we've ever had. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And meanwhile, people on Team USA are more apathetic, or it's not just seen as chasing gold medals like it used to be in the early 2000s or 80s or 90s. Yeah, a little bit of a shame. Yeah. Talk to me about this, uh, you know, going into the new year, some of some things that you might be looking at, uh, you know, moving or what are you targeting? Like reflection that's, or rather, I mean, a little bit of both into 2024, Yeah, a little bit of both. Um, I in general don't really like change to, I mean, again, I guess it's good to not change the fundamentals, but do adapt to whatever is new. Um, I'm probably this is always the weird time or probably the slowest time of the year from a card standpoint because yeah. 
all basketball are in season, which make them not great buys. And baseball hasn't heated up yet to where it's a feverish, proactive hype mania. Yeah. So I'll probably just be sticking to what works. I know that's a little bit of a non-answer, but if that's just buying no. the low rent and just trying to move it yeah. or doing the grading, there's nothing that really screams buy except like maybe Bowman. And also I know nothing. I know nothing if it buys itself. This is just an opinion. No, no, I, I, I'm not looking for specific players, by the way. Yeah. I'm not like, like, hey, this is like the insider scoop on like yeah. what Max is buying. No, yeah. I always try to be like humble or you yeah. know, not rather not humble, but just like have humility and like what little anyone knows about this stuff. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah, I guess in general, I'll be looking at baseball. I'll be trying to look at the new sets as they come out, but not too early, but also not too late. Yeah. Bounce. Like, I don't want to be, again, alluding to the Benedict Matherin situation. I bought a zebra courtside select of his. Um, I bought it in September 21st for, I want to say like $620 or something like that. And which all, at the time was an all-time low. The two previous sales were $900 and $1,500. The $1,500 sale was in July. Yeah. And I got a little, as you you know, collectors get lazy. I, that was like, I got it. I received it right after my, I sent out my other PSA order. I sent it to PSA about maybe a few weeks ago. I got it back at 10. And now the most recent sale is a PSA 10 for $620. So oh, that hurts. I mean, yeah, it hurts. You have to take those hits, but. At the time, again, it's great. Is that, that, is I, that something you're you're going to sell now? Because like, I, it's like you're you're washing your hands of that, or is that like something you would hold on and like kind of wait for it to get a bit like a, a little bit of a bump? I think that's a good question. Um, I really try to be aware of the context of the sale because, in general, auctions, I think au auctions inherently are the second highest someone's willing to pay for it, yeah. and unless it's a very marquee card where you have multiple people fighting top dollar. And the marketing awareness of being it on an auction site or even an auction listing is higher than what people would say pay hey, based off sales history. That's when an auction becomes good, but in most yeah. other times it becomes bad. And when new product PSA 10s eventually hit the market and they're auctioned, that's when it can really be bad. Um, so again, with that being like, okay, well, the previous sale was like, in the 600s for the and 300 for the concourse zebra 600s for the raw zebra granted his market is down and the product you know select is more stale but i think i have it right now listed for like a thousand buy it now on ebay and point point yeah. not i will take less than that if you're listening but <laughs> that's least a rationale of, okay I'm for my canadian people <laughs> you know i'll uh you know i'll set that up to where that it's lowest available it's a marquee card if you wanted it you should have bought it then um and a different illusion is I had a, you know, a reference. I had a Corbin Carroll orange finest autograph. These are doing $400 raw and a PSA 10 auctioned did like 640. And I'm like, I'm not going that low. If the raw is still consistently doing 400, I'm listing it for a thousand. And I eventually got my a thousand to ask on eBay on it, which was great. And it's a very, it's a reality. Lots of people don't like to address. Yeah. Uh, I would have bought that PSA 10 too. Maybe not the Mathurin, but you know, the Carol. I would yeah. have bought that too. And you would have bought that too. And we both know that. So you're not, if you wanted that lower comp at below the comp, which in 90% of my inventory per se, I'm always operating below the comp. If it's something that I would genuinely buy at or around full market, I'm going to be above market when selling it. And if not, and oh, if that's a critical, please sell to me at full market because I will buy it, you know, for those specific cards yes. that I yeah. Bullet. Yeah. See, this is a very interesting conversation because you deal, I mean, from what we've spoken about, majority of it is like the the rare stuff. And the rare stuff is very hard to comp, right? It's so for someone listening right now and might have uh like a rare a, a rarer card, like something number to five, or you know, like a PSA 10 that's like number to 50, but there's like a pop three. And like, to your point, like the last sale was like 650, but you know, like, how do I come up with a comp for the next one? That's my question actually, is like, how do you come up with prices for your cards when there's not a lot of comps to support yeah. your price? Um, might be controversial. Don't post it on social media proactively with the higher than comp price. Cause that's just going to make people soured. Yeah. Right. Or they're going to make people think that you're overpriced on, other yeah. stuff, 
you and but if it's something that you're genuinely bullish on, then eBay is the place. I always do two percent promoted listings. I'm controversial in lots, maybe some more than one aspect. At least in this aspect, I do no best offers on my eBay listings because really, I I feel like it's a buyer psychology a little bit of they think the price is firmer than it is, and like sometimes if you message me, I have room. Other times. I don't, you know, or other times I'll, you know, try to get someone to social media, just, you know, look at their collection, of course, and not do a deal because I was yeah. the US. <laughs> but there's that aspect that has some value in it. But ultimately, yeah, people being thinking I'm more firm than it is. And also, like, if you're a retail consumer, you're just looking at that as like what is available now and what sold isn't entirely relevant. So if it, but also at the same time, you have to be a little bit, sober in what your card is actually worth like yeah it's cool if you have you know a mike trout red out of five and you can compare it to the golds or whatever but there's still other red out of fives that exist or if you have one of ones there's still other similar one of ones that exist so that's just something to be like cognizant of of like the markets um like i bought again i haven't sold this card yet i have a Byron Buxton, Super Fractor Autograph, who's an outfielder for the Minnesota Twins. Of course. For the people, yeah. for the people that don't follow stickball. Yeah. Um, his normal Super Fractor Autographs, or at least the last two I saw, range at about $150 to $200. And I bought this at $200, but not because of Byron Buxton, but because it's from Cosmic Chrome. And a George Springer Super Fractor Autograph just did 1000 And a Bryson Stott second-year Super Fractor Autograph did 1300 and there's a lot of diehard collectors in that cosmic brand. So, and my buying rationality that was, okay, I think I can leverage the cosmic buyers and get that into someone's collection there rather than, you know, pitching it towards the Buxton collectors, where that would just be an overpriced Buxton card and tander it more towards the cosmic chrome audience. So it's a balance of making, you know, using your knowledge base, but at the same time, again, and there's times where I'm guilty of this too, being overvalued of a card or yeah. it, just being wrong and it being worth less than what I think it is. So it's a balance of being aggressive, but also toning it down to be realistic. If you don't get the traffic you think you're getting, don't die on the hill. If you think that there's insecurity in you being on that hill. So when you say traffic, first of all, I love that take, by the way, I think yeah. that that was a great, that was a comprehensive description of like, I mean, I liked specifically your your example about the Byron Buxton and and kind of like targeting those like who's buying this card, like end consumer, right? Like, is it going to be a Byron Buxton collector or is it going to be a Cosmic collector? And I think making that distinction is 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 very interesting. I've got two questions actually. The first one is, how do you? So, I, did you buy that card on eBay or did you buy that card like locally at a show? I bought it from a friend who's a local dealer in Tampa, and I'm sure he was. Actually, I know he was in it for cheaper because he told me. Yeah. And again, that's another thing of like he made his he made, you know, maybe, you know, actually, I think probably like 60 percent profit on that. Not bad. Card. Yeah. He's happy because he just bought it very cheap as just like a generic super factor auto. Mm -hmm. And I'm happy again. If I think I can make money on that while also taking care of him, I'm happy to buy that and then try it myself. Yeah. Or at absolute, you know, again, no one likes taking a loss, but I the. You know, the expected value, I think, of me being able to take that and sell that for higher makes it made sense for me to do that decision. No, for sure. Uh, I the think reason or, why I asked... or, I'll, or I'll hold on to the card and I'll be wrong. Yeah. You know, I yeah. haven't sold it yet. Yeah. I think that's interesting. Uh, specific, like, I, I was like, okay, how does that work if you bought it from eBay? But it makes sense that, like, okay, like yeah. if the last few comps for other types of cosmic superfractors are where they're at. And again, th this is where knowledge comes into it. This is where, you know, knowing knowing other markets comes into this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's uh, definitely like once the once a comp exists, it becomes more crystallized than it should. And, you know, for better or for worse, um, again, I hate that I'm jumping around to so many different cards. But no, no, that's okay. That come to mind. And I think it's fruitful to share these examples. Yeah. But Giannis Antetokounmpo 2020 downtown and Raw consistently does seven to eight hundred bucks. And I graded it and I penned my raw copy. And there's one PWCC sale that just happened at 1100. And my response to that isn't you know, as respectful to buy as possible because it's not their fault that they're trying to leverage a sale. I mean, that I would be doing that too. Yeah. But I'm just like, yeah, 
I can't respect 1100 for a PSA 10 when there's like six times as many encased sealed sales doing 7800 and the customary multiplier is 2000 you know again i'm okay i'm definitely i'm okay and i encourage people making a dollar off me most of the people that buy and sell my football probably are doing it to make a dollar on me and i'm letting them get that margin yeah. because i don't think i can do that myself in some of those markets markets yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but if it makes, you know, if you have six sales at, you know, 7,800 and one sale of a PSA 10 at 1,100 and there's just not nearly as many of them, that's one where I'll defer to the comps that are in more, my favor, not just because of like ego or whatever, but because like, well, if there's more of them, I think I'm more inclined to be right than to give into the market sale. But at that same time, I'm not really kind of expecting to move it unless it's towards eBay or unless it's someone who is more of a, like a downtown collector. Yeah where so how have you managed to build up these channels so like the discord channel the twitter channel because i mean not only do you have a following but you have a following of people who are willing to buy and sell i don't i mean i i guess like the hobby is so interesting and i've shared this before and that like it's all right to it's a completely great space harboring entrepreneurship harboring individualism harboring buying and selling but there's ways to make money that people are okay and ways to make money that aren't. And I think the marketing and, you know, generating traffic and social media growth is something that's like a little frowned upon yeah. sometimes or not attributing credit to as like a content aggregator, sometimes not. So yeah. space I haven't involved in myself and I haven't really thought of it mechanically of like, how am I building this audience? Um, but I do, th but it is something that I do. I mean, but you do have a considerable. I, yeah, audience, I do frequently right? like, think about it though, yeah. just from like, yeah. How do I provide value? How do I get attain a larger group of not only potential buyers but potential human beings to yeah. buy dialogue on? Yeah. Um, there's not that many people on Twitter relative to other spaces, but it is and probably always will be be my medium of choice, just because you're able to have dialogue. It's sometimes the same people again, people that you're friendly with that are making the interesting takes and the perspectives, and allows people to build upon and expand. And part of that, again, I made my Twitter in June 2020, and it's at, I think, 23,000 or 24,000 followers, something like that. Part of that has just been out of consistent dialogue. I, I don't care if you have 10 followers or 100 or 10,000 or 100,000. Like, I'm probably going to treat you the same way. You know, um, if, you, if you just say, what's your lowest? I don't care how many followers you have. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably going to be... <laughs> something that i've noticed in myself too it's like if like if a ebay buyer is like then getting onto my social media i've noticed that i'm way friendlier in my social media dms than my than the faceless eBay <laughs> and in the same way that twitter is kind of like a marketplace on an ideas and i think is more emphasized on community building i don't just want to get into like hubba dub instagram is a little bit more the opposite in that its focal point is the individual and the, not only the as a collector, what pieces you have, what items you have for sale, and the biggest items get the most clicks. But you know the person who produces the content, which is very individualized because you're producing it and not as much aggregating or sharing it. Yeah, that leads to Instagram growth, and that's something that I have to that I want to work on myself, just out of wanting to be you know strong on all dimensions, and that's yeah that I'm lacking in more. But at least you know Twitter is my medium of choice because I think it tailors for me. As for Discord, um, you know, I work with Ryan's cards LLC on his Discord. I love Ryan. I've known him for a few years now. Again, he was he, he's very active on Twitter, so that just led to a very natural bond of him and a lot of other people. And then, you know, in terms, you know, it's just talking to people, which I think yeah. I great about cards that there's always I've been doing a lot of talking right here. You know, there's so much that is just innate and easy to talk and share, and you can tell how me and very other other people are passionate about what they enjoy. I mean, you're definitely passionate. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on. And uh, man, please don't ever get like upset about talking. I love it. I mean, I, I, the fact is, I mean, you're on this show for the audience to get to know you. And also mm -hmm. because, I mean, you've done such an amazing job of, like, like you said, creating a community on several different platforms. Uh, you've got valuable knowledge not just in the, the the baseball space, but in terms of like buying and selling and, and, you know, uh, consumer ide ideologies, like there's just so many things where I was like, man, like I, I want to have a, a chat with this guy and then really get to yeah. know him. Uh, 
talk to me about your PC. Like, what does that consist of? Like, how do you when you when all these cool cards come across your your feed when they come across your when you're, you come across them at a table, how do you decide what gets PC'd and what 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 you're like? I gotta move this thing. I think one of the unfortunate aspects of buying and selling, especially once you get to like high, like sub a hundred or excuse me, stronger than a hundred or stronger than a thousand dollar cards, is that you become to become more callous to the larger cards. Yeah, and like the cards that change my hands, and I try to again. I use the analogy before of. I think, you know, if you re- if you lease a car or if you lease a new car, you get to enjoy the new car, you spend money on it, you know, entering and exiting and your enjoyment was your use of the car. And that's the premium that you paid for it. And, ex- you know, when I'm buying and selling a card, if I'm buying a card for $50 and I'm selling it for a hundred, still get got to enjoy it. I'm like, well, this is a sick card. And then I got to sell it for more. It's like, I get to do that. I get to get the enjoyment value and I get to end up on top monetarily more times than not. You know, that's just pretty awesome <laughs> yeah um, in terms of my individual pc um um i when i was like in that free flipping post man caving type or um era of max i wanted more yankees aaron judge was too expensive at the time because yeah. this was or a year or two after his all rise mania in 2017 so even in 2019 he was still on the more expensive side. So I settled with Glaber Torres as my Yankee of choice. And I accumulated, again, I collected, but I think there's a fun distinction between the word collected and accumulated. Yeah. Um, I got enjoyed a lot of PSA 10 lower end base labs. And it's like PSA 10, you know, the general Allen and Ginter. I wanted the Allen and Ginter PSA 10 base card. I wanted the tops 3D base card for 2019. Um, and, you know, I really wanted to roll for 2018, but I didn't end up getting it. And the mountain that I wanted to climb was, okay, a Sapphire rookie was like $800 at a time, like $800 for a baseball card. That's crazy. And I'm like Uber eating for money during the pandemic, just, you know, because I had a bit of a recess and yeah. that was my spending money. And I'm like, okay, great. I can get this labor card. If I, you know, Uber eats this, this much, I have a thousand Uber eats trips to my name back in my day. But, um, and then also a Bowman Chrome monograph was something that was on the top of my list. And, you know, after Glaber's market started lowering and lowering, it gave me the, you know, it awakened me to the re- unfortunate reality of everything you buy just usually goes lower in value and you have to really enjoy it. Um, I eventually got my Glaber Torres Sapphire in that I bought a few boxes of 2021 Bowman Sapphire, but wait, 2018 is Glaber's rookie year. Um, I sold them on Twitter and someone opened my, opened the box and DM'd me, do you want to know what was inside? And I'm like, yeah, I generally like no enclosure. I like finding out. The yeah. Answer. And he pulled in Austin Martin, first Bowman purple Sapphire autograph to 10. And that was when wow. Austin Martin rushed number two overall pick. Yeah. 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 That was a product hit. Yeah. And that was probably worth five to six thousand dollars at the time. And he's like, "Hey, I got to make it up to you. Who do you PC?" And I'm like, "Oh, I, you know, I PC Glaber. You know, you don't have to, but I PC Glaber Torres. He's my New York, my focal point of my collection." And it's like, "Oh, I have a Sapphire rookie. I didn't grade it because PSA was backed up. Well, probably ten, you know." And I'm like, "Okay, like you don't have to, but I'm like, yeah, I, I will. I'll take that. I think they're doing like a hundred or two hundred bucks at the time. Yeah, it's nothing compared to his five to six thousand dollar gain. But at the same time, it's like I'm okay." I would be like he I didn't he didn't have to do that. You yeah, know? he didn't like, have to. Yeah, and I'm, I'm yeah. like I never like acted entitled yeah. because it's like I'm I'm okay with drawing the risk of the five thousand six thousand dollar box. It's like I would have done precision every single time. Yeah, you know, except for sometimes. <laughs> and <laughs> the card ended up tenning, and that's one of the bigger cards in my collection, which is now only worth like a hundred bucks, which is or two hundred bucks, which is unfortunate. But at the same time, I've climbed that mountain. I, you know, I ended up buying, you know, a Bowman Chrome autograph of Labor Torres when they were like 200 bucks and all of like the uber expensive labor stuff is either locked in collections or extremely high just because of the New York Yankee tax. Yeah. So sometimes I'm brokering Labor Torres. If I see a big Labor Torres edit show, I know the few collectors to show them to, but, um, that was kind of my mountain. And the upsetting part is that I've already climbed it and I've seen like, a lot larger cards in my hands that I'm just like, not like I've owned a few, 
like two or three Aaron Judge PSA 10 Bowman Chrome autographs like at once. Yeah. And at nine at 18, 19, I'm like, like, wow, if I own one of those, that's absolutely obscene. That's crazy. And now it's again, I don't take any of it ungratefully, but at the same time, it does diminish a little bit. And I guess the second part of my PC, it would be I did a Luis Severino rainbow for his 2019 Tops flagship. And I have like 50 different parallels from that. I think the count is at 51. And if I, I, I haven't expanded to it in like a year or two, just because the few ones that I need rarely show up, yeah. but I've, I'm for and against rainbows because they're just an absolute money pit, but at the same time, they're really damn fun and it activates the set collecting in you. Yes. I love uh, those that. are probably my two biggest projects that I've done. I love that. Uh, the, the Severino rainbow, do you, like, are they graded? Are they like in a binder? Are they top loaded? They're all raw. Nice. They're in a folio i have them arranged from lowest from you know from a highest print run to lowest print run um luis severino just became a new york met as of a few weeks ago and one of my buddies um sent me a link to the 2023 or 2021 one of the years tops flagship you know platinum one of once and i'm like yeah i'm, I'm buying this for like 100 bucks it's like i not that it was for the rainbow but just out of like yankees cool one of one 100 bucks i i want it yeah and I, and I, I think that, I mean, I don't know if you, like, do you experience fatigue in, in the market? Like, do you, in, in the hobby? Like, do you, do you ever feel like, like tired or, I, I mean, that's a genuine question. Yeah. Um, I think there's a natural fatigue because you're buying and selling the same stuff. I'll never like not be on the edge of my seat, whether that's like, there's stuff that I grade and I'm like, wow, this tend, or even like the Shohei Otani, you know, or the aforementioned image variation that I keep bringing up this episode. It's where I'm like, I saw it and I'm like, that's a cool card. And not only, okay, I'm going to make money on it. And, you know, I would be buying it, you know, for the purpose of making money on it. But I'm like, that's a cool card. The, I'm such a sucker for the tops opening day, dugout peaks and image variations. Yeah. Give me that. It's like, and I know, I know just out of how, you of them reach the open market that I'd be able to sell it well. But at the same time, it's like, okay, there's not many of these ever available. I want to hold one. <laughs> That's awesome. Max, man, I want to thank you so much for jumping on today. Uh, before we get let you go, where can people find you? Where can they contact you? Where can they ask you for advice or potentially buy an item or offer you an item? Yeah. So eBay is cards, Max. Um, on I have a podcast of my own, which is growing and that I enjoy a lot. That's Young Old Heads Podcast on Instagram and Young underscore Old Heads on Twitter. Um, my personal or rather card Twitter is at CardsMax, and that's on Twitter, Instagram, sometimes TikTok. And that those are probably the best places to find me. Amazing. Man, I want to thank you again. Uh team, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Cardboard Coach. I know I did. Don't forget. To go follow Cards Max. And uh, I hope you guys have one for us today. Coach Co and Max are out of here. Peace.